In the beginning of John chapter 6, just by way of review, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And not by making a large withdrawal from his bank account and placing a bulk order at the local bakery. Jesus feeds 5,000 people miraculously. And this obviously was a good thing in and of itself. The people were so pleased with what he had done that they wanted to make him king. Let's have bread every day. Especially free bread. If we have the opportunity to have someone rule over us who will give us free stuff, why not? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Many people today think in such a way every election. These people wanted to come and make Jesus king because he would give them free stuff. They realize the next day that Jesus is not there, but that he also had not gotten into the boat with the disciples. But they know the disciples have gotten in the boat and have gone across the sea. And so I guess they figure the best place to look for Jesus is probably wherever his disciples are, because he's bound to meet up with them again. So they go across the sea and they find Jesus there. And Jesus says to them, as we looked at last week, I know why you're here, not because you recognize the significance of what I did across the sea, across the lake, but simply because you want more literal bread. You're not here because you want what was signified by the bread I gave you. You're here because you just want me to give you more bread. In other words, you'd be happy if I just did another sign. Even if you did not perceive what was signified by that sign, you wouldn't care. That, that issue doesn't perplex you. You're not concerned about your spiritual blindness, your lack of perceiving. You just want more bread. But then Jesus says to them, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, he's drawing a contrast between perishable food and imperishable food. And he is highlighting for them in saying, I know why you're here, not because you saw signs. He's highlighting for them that what he had done was indeed a sign. And if it was a sign, therefore there is also something signified. And so Jesus, instead of just rebuking them, turning his back on them and walking away offers them better bread, imperishable bread, rather than perishable. That which is signified instead of just another sign. That's what we looked at last week. And we know that Jesus is the bread of life that he was offering to these people as better bread. He's saying, look, You just want another loaf of bread, but let me give you myself. I am the bread of life. I am imperishable bread. I am that which was signified by the miracle across the lake. I will give you life as physical bread sustains your temporal life here and now. I will give you eternal life. This is what has transpired so far. Jesus says, labor not for perishable food but for the food that endures to eternal life. In that statement in John 6, 27, Jesus is saying two things. He gives a negative command and a positive command. 
don't do this, but instead do that. He says, don't labor for perishable food. But instead, he says, implicitly, well, not even implicitly, do labor. The word do isn't there, but labor's there. So that's why it's explicit. Don't labor for perishable food. Instead, labor or do labor for imperishable food. So there's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. Stop chasing the things that can't truly give you life. Stop chasing the things that can't truly satisfy. But he does say, instead, labor. Do labor for the imperishable food. For that which was signified by the sign. Jesus is not advising these people to labor to earn this imperishable food. Of course. So so many passages in Scripture teach the opposite. That it would be ludicrous to interpret Jesus' words that way. Jesus is not saying, earn imperishable food. Earn eternal life. So when he says labor for imperishable food, labor towards that eternal life, labor towards that which is signified, he can't mean earn it. Let's look at just a couple other passages of Scripture that just hammer this point home. Romans chapter 11 and verse 6. There we read, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's speaking about this remnant of Israel chosen by grace, but the principle is applicable to this because he's talking about the very nature of grace. If something is given because of works that earn, then it's not grace. Like in Romans 4, it says if someone works, it's not counted as his gift, but as his due. If your employer pays you for the work that you do, you don't say thank you. You're so gracious and generous. You just take your paycheck. You may say thank you to be polite, but really and truly, they owe it to you. You earned it. They're not at liberty to withhold it. So it is. If something is earned, it's not gracious. Grace would no longer be grace. This is really key, really crucial to understand. If something is earned, it is not gracious. So Jesus cannot be saying labor as in earning this imperishable food. Labor as in earning the bread of life which was signified by the bread across the lake. The gospel is grace. Ephesians 2 says twice, By grace are ye saved. By grace are ye saved. This is so clear in the Bible that we cannot interpret Jesus' words in John chapter 6 when he says, Labor for the food that endures to eternal life. We just cannot interpret Jesus' words as being earned the food which endures to eternal life. Jesus is not advising these people to labor to earn. Yet as the late Dallas Willard said, 
Grace is not opposed to effort, but only to earning. And Jesus is advising these people to exercise effort. Jesus is saying, put in the effort, make it your ambition, strive, work hard, hustle hard. For what? To get that which was signified by the miraculous provision across the lake. To get imperishable bread. The people ask essentially, how? Look at verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, most commentators construe this question in verse 28 as an obvious attempt to earn salvation, totally incompatible with the grace that Jesus is offering. Most commentators interpret this as another negative example of hard-heartedness, misunderstanding the grace of God and insisting on their own works instead. In other words, most commentators do something like this. Look at the impiety of these people. They just can't get away from works. But at this juncture in the conversation, I think it's a fair question. Obviously, these people do prove hard-hearted by the end of John chapter 6. But we're not there yet. And I think at this juncture in the conversation, it's a fair question. After all, didn't Jesus, didn't Jesus just say labor? Jesus just said labor for the food that endures to eternal life. And they say, essentially, okay, what works? What works must we do? What labor is required here? So... I won't make much of the question itself this morning or try to extrapolate what might be going on in the hearts of the questioners here. I'll simply take their question at face value and we'll focus on Jesus' answer this morning. What should you apply your effort to if you desire imperishable bread? If you desire to receive that which was signified by the feeding of the 5,000 across the lake, then what should you labor at? What should you work at? After all, it's Jesus who said labor for these things. Labor for that imperishable food. Labor for that which was signified by the sign. And Jesus' answer is simple. Believe. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe. That's what you work at. That's what you labor at if you desire imperishable bread. If you desire to receive that which was signified. That's what God requires. That's the work God requires. That's what it means when it says the work of God. The work from God. The work that God gives. That's what it means, of God. The work of God, the work from God, the work that God requires. This work of believing is this work of believing. We'll look at three things related to this belief this morning. First, the unworthiness of the belief that God requires. Secondly, the object of the belief that God requires. And then thirdly, the nature of the belief that God requires. Requires. So let's begin with the unworthiness of the belief that God requires. 
in my opinion, one of the foremost dangers to the evangelical church, that is the gospel-believing church in our day and age, one of the foremost dangers is what is called neo-nomianism. Neo means new, and nomos means law. So neo-nomianism is new law. Neo-nomianism is the doctrine that there is a new law in the New Testament, which replaces the old law of the Old Testament. And the new law, according to neo-nomians, is faith and repentance. And so in the Old Testament, God said, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make no images of me to worship them, you shall not misuse my name, you shall keep the Sabbath day, you shall honor your father and mother, etc., etc., but that proved difficult. And so now the Lord has basically said, well, okay, if you exercise faith and repentance, I will count that as being enough. And that that becomes, your faith and repentance becomes the righteousness that God requires in order to justify you, to declare you as righteous and to accept you. I'm not saying that everybody understands and is consciously an adherent of this neonomian system. But what I would like to suggest is that many, many, many professing Christians think that they're going to heaven because their faith is good enough. Or their repentance is thorough enough. Because they've done the works that God requires well enough. That faith is their merit. That repentance is their merit. And that's just neonomianism. Every time you hear the gospel preached like this, God comes 99% of the way down. He's right there. And now He's within your reach and all He's left for you to do is exercise faith. And if you will just meet that condition that God has set, then God will accept you. That's... Neonomianism. Anytime that we place faith and repentance in the schema of the gospel in such a way that it becomes a condition that you meet to earn salvation or to contribute to your salvation, you strayed away from the true gospel into neonomianism. And I say that this is one of the foremost dangers to the evangelical church because it's very prevalent. But more than that, it's very subtle. If someone came and said, the way you get to heaven is by being a good person. You don't need Jesus. You just need to be a good person. Most evangelicals would be like, heretic. Because that's obvious. If most people said, you don't need only Jesus, you also need the Virgin Mary. Most evangelicals would be like, heretic. Right? Because we're like, no, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. You don't need good works, you need Jesus. You don't need the Virgin Mary, you need Jesus. But if we're like, oh, but you need Jesus and faith. You see what I mean? It's very subtle. And I'm not denying that faith is necessary. In fact, the whole point of my sermon this morning is that the work that God requires is faith. But we need to understand properly where faith fits into this schema of salvation and gospel. And it's not earning. 
But neonomianism tells you that faith earns. There are two reasons why neonomianism is wrong. Well, there's probably more than two. There's two that I'm going to mention this morning. One is it would mean that God is not holy. Because if it is true that God had this law in the Old Testament, which was higher and um, more rigorous, and that that's what holiness looks like, but God realized we can't be holy, and so He's basically lowered the bar that if we're sincere in our faith and repentance, then He will accept us. It means that God has compromised then His stringent requirement of holiness. Never mind if you've broken this law or that law as long as you have faith and repentance. Secondly, neonomianism goes against the clear biblical doctrine repeated in Romans 3, Galatians 3, other places in different words. But I'm quoting from Romans 3, By works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. By works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. Okay, listen. If God requires faith and repentance, then in some sense they are part of God's law then, right? More precisely, we could say that they are an application of the first of the two great commandments. Faith and repentance are part of what it looks like to love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. How could you say you love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind if you don't have faith in His Son whom He sent and if you don't try to turn away from your sin, which displeases Him? Or we could also say that faith and repentance are an application of the first three of the Ten Commandments. Faith and repentance are necessary to the proper worship of God, which is the gist of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Positively, you shall have me though. How are we going to have Him as our God without faith and repentance? That doesn't even make any sense. We must not worship a God of our own making, an image, an imaginary God who does not require faith and repentance. It's the same root word, that's why I said it that way. Our imagination is that which conjures up images. We must not worship an imaginary God who does not require faith and repentance. And then the third commandment, you shall not misuse His name. Right? You shall not take His name in vain. In other words, you shall have reverence for God. How could we have reverence for God if we don't even have faith in Him? Or if we don't even repent of sins that He says we should and we ought to? How can we say we respect you but no? So you can see very much that faith and repentance are commanded by God. It's it's part of what God's law requires is faith and repentance. If by works of the law no one will be justified, then neither by any other works or the works of faith and repentance will anyone be justified. Our works of faith and repentance are like any other work we might might do. We ought to do them. We are expected to do them. But we are not justified on the basis of our doing of them. 
Neonomianism says the opposite, and that's why neonomianism is wrong. So let's get this clear, first of all. The first point of today's message, when it says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The first thing that we need to understand is the unworthiness of our doing of that work. If we do that work, it doesn't earn anything before God. Any more than our doing of any other work that God requires earns in God's sight. Even if we believe in Him whom He has sent, we're doing so imperfectly, just as we do all of our other works. And even if we do that one, we've left many other ones undone. And so it remains, by works of the law, including faith and repentance, no one will be justified in His sight. So that's the first thing, just to be very clear about the Gospel. Our works of faith and repentance, as pertaining to earning, are worthless. Filthy rags, like Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says. You come to God and you say, but my faith was so strong. But my repentance was so thorough. God would say, you're leaning on that instead of my son? Filthy rags. The merit by which we obtain salvation is not our merit. Earned by supposedly keeping the Ten Commandments, or by supposedly keeping the commandments to love God and neighbor, or by keeping the commandment to place faith in God and exercise repentance toward Him. The merit by which we obtain salvation is not our merit, but another's. And this brings us to our second point this morning. The first was the unworthiness of our belief. The second is the object of our belief. Who does God require us to believe in? Look at verse 29. Him whom God has sent. We all know that Jesus came. John 1, 9 tells us that He came into the world. He descended from heaven. John 3, 13 tells us. Though Nicodemus came to Him, there is a sense in which Jesus came to Nicodemus. Jesus came to the woman at the well. Jesus came to the official's sickly son. Jesus came to the invalid by the pool at Bethsaida. Jesus came to the crowds who were hungry and needing bread. As Luke tells us, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We all know Jesus came. Jesus was set. He was set also. He didn't just come contra the Father's will or independent of the Father's will. He came according to the Father's will. Jesus was sent for such a purpose. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world... That He gave. For God so loved the world that He gave. Our triune God sent the second person of the Godhead into this world. That whosoever believeth in Him may not perish 
but have everlasting life. And John 3 continues, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You catch the implication there? God did not send His Son for this purpose, but God sent His Son in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus was sent. He came because He was sent on a mission to seek and save the lost in order that He might hang on that cross that whosoever believeth in Him. In order that He would be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. In order that whoever believeth in Him. Jesus Christ came. He was also sent to be lifted up that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus came to live a life of perfect righteousness in the place of sinners. So that we would be able to believe in His righteousness. Jesus died on the cross a wrath-bearing, propitiatory death so that we might be able to believe in His cross work and say, there is no more wrath for me because Jesus has borne it all. We are to believe in this One who was sent. We are to look at Jesus on His mission from heaven and believe in Him in order that we might be saved by His merit. The merit is not in our belief. The merit is in the One in whom we believe. Upon whom we lean This is the work of God. Believe in Him whom God has sent. God requires that you believe in Him. Faith, it has been said, is merely the empty hand that takes hold of Christ Jesus and His Gospel. Let's say that you have a friend or a brother who goes and earns a hundred dollars for a day's work. And he comes to you and he says, I have a gift for you. And you open your hand and you take that hundred dollar bill and you say, by my hand, I have acquired one hundred dollars. Well, in a sense, that's true. And in a sense, that's not true, isn't it? Because you really did reach out and receive it, but you really did not earn it. It came to you by a gift. And so we say, by my faith, I have laid hold of Christ and I have eternal life. And in a sense that's true, and in a sense that's not true. And that's what I've been trying to unpack for clarity's sake this morning. It's not by your empty hand by which you have taken hold of Christ Jesus that you have saved yourself, that you have earned your salvation. Your hand has reached out and taken hold of Christ, but it is He who has saved you. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, yes, but it is by grace you have been saved. This is the work that God requires 
that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And so the unworthiness of our belief, we don't stand on the merit of our belief. Secondly, the object of our belief, who is Christ Jesus, who came, who was also sent by the triune God for us and for our salvation. God requires that we believe in Him. What does that mean to believe in the one whom He has sent? What does it look like? We come now to our third point, which is the nature of the belief that God requires. First of all, let us note that God requires more than mere mental assent. For one thing, mere mental assent could hardly be called labor. Jesus says labor for that food which endures to eternal life. And we just read a paragraph and go, okay, I believe that. First of all, it just doesn't fit with the language. Furthermore, even the demons have mere mental assent. We read in James, they know what's true. They know what's up. Even the demons believe and shudder, it says. All throughout the New Testament, God requires a faith that works. A faith that is not merely theoretical, but practical. A faith that is active. And this is why Jesus can put labor and faith together in this section. Again, not in terms of earning, but in terms of effort. Faith takes effort. Paul often poses an antithesis between faith and works because what what Paul is trying to highlight is that you can't earn. And I'm not pitting Paul against Jesus. I'm just saying they're using words in different ways and highlighting different aspects. Here, Jesus is using labor and faith together because he's not trying to highlight um, the difference between earning and grace. He's trying to highlight the activity, the, the work that is involved in exercising real, true, biblical faith. So in what ways may we do this work of faith that God requires? I want to mention a couple that I think are main ones. One is by continually pushing our confidence away from ourselves and onto Christ. That's what it means to believe in Him whom God has sent, is to shift our confidence away from ourselves and onto Christ. We need to continually, however, push our confidence away from ourselves and onto Christ. You could imagine that our confidence is like a boulder on the side of Mount Calvary. And up at the top is the cross. And down, down at the bottom, we are at the base looking up at Mount Calvary. And our confidence always wants to roll away from the cross back to us. And so we're just constantly trying to push that boulder back up toward the cross. Not me. Like we sang earlier in the service. Not in me. Not in me. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. The weary load 
My weary load was borne by Him. And He alone can give me rest. But then we start to make a little bit of victory over a certain sin in our life. And pretty soon we're parading ourselves around like a peacock. Like I've done something. And I have some righteousness of my own in which I may boast. All of a sudden we do our devotions every day for a whole week or a whole month. And all of a sudden we start feeling pretty pleased with ourselves. And all of a sudden we start feeling pretty self-righteous. But all those other sinners who aren't quite as diligent as we are, who aren't quite as disciplined as us. After all, we prayed every day this week. Did they? You see how it subtly begins coming back toward us like a boulder rolling down Mount Calvary away from the cross back down towards us. Our confidence always gravitates back towards us and we need to keep pushing our confidence. No, not in me. Back to Jesus. Reminding ourselves, reminding our own hearts over and over. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But Jesus is that spotless Lamb of God. I could never propitiate God's wrath towards my sins. But Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, died in my place to take away my sin. Let me work then. Let me labor then in this believing in the Son of God by pushing that boulder back up Mount Calvary towards the cross where it belongs. That's one way that we can labor to believe in Him whom God has sent. Another way that we can labor to believe in Him whom God has sent is by persisting through obstacles. We start off the Christian life often on a high. And we just feel like heaven is three or four inches away. We're just there in the heavenlies, seated with Christ Jesus. And we feel the Father's love. After all, doesn't it say in Romans that God has shed abroad His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit? We feel that and we cry out, Abba, Father. And we have a sense of the presence of Christ with us by His Spirit. He said, Lo, I am with thee always, even to the end of the age. And when we start off in the Christian life, we feel it. He's here with us. And we're communing with God and so on and so forth. And then obstacles begin to come. You get busy. You find you're not as able to follow through as the best of your intentions. And you start sinning, even though you felt maybe on day one like you'd never sin again. And you miss your devotions, even though you said, man, I don't, I don't want to do anything but pray and read my Bible anymore. I belong to Christ Jesus now. Obstacles began coming up. And obstacles keep coming up. It's not like, just let me clear these few things out of the way. 
You know, yes, I hit a few snags, but let me clear them out of the way and it'll be smooth sailing for the rest of my Christian life. Listen, obstacles keep coming up. The nature of faith is that the nature of the faith that God requires, the nature of true biblical saving faith is that it perseveres through all the obstacles. And that's labor. That's work. Again, this is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom God has sent. What do you mean? Isn't it as simple as mental ascent? No, it's not. It's that work of pushing our confidence back up the hill toward the cross away from ourselves. It's also the work of persisting through obstacles. Sometimes the obstacles that come up are intellectual. I never thought of that before. And that shakes my faith. Christian, you need to do the hard work of loving God with your mind. I'm not going to walk away so easily that some critic of the Christian faith gets up and says something and I go, oh, well, I never really thought of that. I guess I won't be a Christian anymore. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Clear away those obstacles as best as you can. Seek the truth. Study the scriptures. Immerse yourself. Grow in sound doctrine. Grow in a knowledge of God. Think clearly. Think deeply about spiritual things. That you may clear away intellectual obstacles and persist through them in faith. And that takes work. Perhaps moral obstacles come up. You just like your sin. And in the beginning of your Christian life, you, again, you felt like, man, I don't even hunger for the things of the world anymore. But then later, you start to feel like a pull back towards certain sinful things. Do the labor of believing in Him whom God has sent. By clearing away those moral obstacles, persisting through them. Thinking clearly about these things. Don't give yourself a cop-out. Remind yourself of the truth. Remind yourself of the goodness of God. Remind yourself of the law of God. Remind yourself of the gospel. Persist through that moral obstacle that's in the way of believing. You come to these forks in the road throughout the Christian life. Repeatedly. It's not, again, it's not like you solve your intellectual problems once and that's it. It's not like you solve your moral problems once and that's it. You repeatedly come to these forks in the road where you have this choice to labor in believing in Him whom God has sent or just stop laboring and wander off the path. There could be emotional obstacles too. It just gets hard. You just get tired in the Christian life. It'd be easier to just quit believing in Him whom God has sent. Or perhaps you read something in the Bible that you don't like. Let's be honest, it happens. You find something there that makes you uncomfortable. 
you can see that believing in Him whom God has sent takes effort, takes activity, it's hard work, it's labor. And so, Jesus says, labor in believing. Labor in believing in Him whom God has sent. Get a pushing faith that pushes your confidence back onto Christ whenever it wants to roll back onto you. Get a persisting faith that perseveres through obstacles that come up along the way. Works and faith don't go together in the sense of earning. And that's what Paul's always highlighting when he makes them an antithesis. But works and faith go hand in hand when it comes to effort. Because the faith that God requires, genuine saving faith in God's Son who was sent from heaven, that takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of work over the course of our lives. And that's why Jesus puts it together here in this passage. Jesus and Paul are not saying two different things. They're just highlighting two different truths. As Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, though grace is opposed to earning. All other effort in life is rewarded with mere perishable bread. So you get what you've been working for. Great. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's passing. This is not a strict, absolute prohibition, of course. Otherwise, you couldn't earn your wages and buy groceries and live. When Jesus says, labor not for the food that perishes, it's not a strict prohibition. But the point is, put it in perspective. Even if you get that career advancement, that house, that car, that spouse, that family, whatever it is you're laboring for, whatever it is you're really putting that effort in for, realize that when you get it, it's all perishing. So instead, put forth that effort toward believing in the one who was sent from heaven. That's where your priority really ought to be. That's where you should really be putting your effort. That's where you should really be putting your focus. If you want imperishable bread, that which really gives eternal life, that which really lasts, that which ultimately satisfies, if you really want that, if you really want what was signified by the miracle of feeding the 5,000, not just a loaf of bread, but bread himself, Jesus, the bread of life, If you really want that, it's going to take some work. What kind of work? The work of believing. The work of faith. You need a pushing faith. Pushing your confidence back onto Christ whenever it wants to roll back onto yourself. A persisting faith that goes through obstacles, be they intellectual, moral, emotional, whatever. You need a pushing faith and a persisting faith. But according to this passage, be assured 
that that effort expended is worthwhile. When you put your effort into believing in the one who has been sent from heaven, you will find that that way of life leads not to mere temporal satisfaction, temporal life, perishable things. You will find that that way of life, putting all your effort primarily onto believing in Christ Jesus, you will find that that way of life leads to eternal life. Imperishable bread. That which is signified rather than a mere sign. 